There, there are many traits that comprise a leader, uh, many valuable traits. But perhaps one of the most valued traits in the life of a leader would be steadiness. Steadiness. Years ago, John Gardner wrote an outstanding book on leadership. I have read it three or four times, and I continue to turn back to this book because it, uh, it contains so much wisdom. Gardner writes about the importance of trust as a key factor in being a leader. Uh, in your area of leadership responsibility, whatever it might be, uh, you can't lead without trust. No leader can lead effectively without trust. One of the things that contributes to trust is steadiness. Listen to what Gardner says. He says, one of the most important prerequisites for trust in a leader is steadiness. The need for reliability is not only ethically desirable, it is generally a practical necessity. A leader who is unpredictable poses a nerve-wracking problem for followers. Uh, they cannot rally around a leader if they don't know where he stands. A business acquaintance of mine commenting on his personal congressman said, it isn't that he's crooked, it's just that I can't keep track of him. He's too swift for me. I wish he'd stay in one place. Perhaps you grew up in a home with a father uh, who was not steady, but who was unsteady. Uh, if your father had mood swings, uh, there wasn't much calm in your family. If you were given, if I'm given uh, uh, to rage, uh, to temper. Uh, so what happened with Bobby Knight yesterday? What was that all about? Uh, we'll probably never know. Uh, there are always two sides to a story, but something happened in Lubbock. Something happened at that lunch that uh, evoked a reaction. And uh, the, what I read in the paper today, Knight acknowledged he probably didn't handle it at a certain point real well, and good for him for saying that. But you see, he's got a reputation. Uh, you never, and one reason you watch the games that he coaches, you never know what the guy's going to do because he's unpredictable as opposed to uh, John Wooden. You remember Wooden? The, uh, you, you couldn't tell by watching Wooden's face if they were 40 points ahead, which they usually were, or if they were 40 points behind. Uh, remember Tom Landry? Landry, if they were 40 points ahead, his expression was the same if they were 40 points behind. The, the thing that you would pick up from those men is that they were steady. They, they, uh, their heads weren't turned and their emotions weren't turned when they were experiencing the thrill of victory. Uh, and quite frankly, they weren't much different if they were experiencing the agony of defeat. Uh, that's kind of life. 
uh, well, you got that clip in your head, don't you, from Wild World of Sports and the music and McKay's voiceover, you know, the thrill of victory, dun, 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 and the agony of defeat. And what's the image for the agony of defeat? That sucker coming down that ski jump. You know, he's ready. He's cruising. He's in the groove. Something goes wrong. Boom, boom, pow, ping, ping. I mean, that sucker got hammered. You see? That is the agony of defeat. Um, as leaders, we experience both. From time to time, you get a victory. From time to time, you get a triumph. But you're also going to get some setbacks, and you're going to get defeat. It, 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 we all experience it. It's the, way, it's the way life is. There is a great value to a leader being steady. No matter what life brings, no matter what the crises are. Theodore Roosevelt was, um, was a revered president. Uh, he, was, uh, he was greatly loved. He was, uh, he was greatly admired because of his character. Mark Twain said, there is no figure in our lifetime who is more highly revered than Theodore Roosevelt. And you know, Mark Twain was a cynic, and Mark Twain was sarcastic. But one of the things that was appreciated about Roosevelt was that he was steady. He was aggressive, but he was steady. Uh, in in uh, Gardner's book on leadership, uh, one of the examples that he refers to is Theodore Roosevelt. And he says this, in 1912, Theodore Roosevelt spoke to a campaign audience for an hour and a half with an assassin's bullet lodged in his chest. Happened after he's president. And then if you're familiar with his life, he was going to run again for the Bull Moose Party. And as he was speaking, a guy shot him in the chest. Um, there was a panic. Uh, Roosevelt got up, calmed everybody down, and spoke for another 90 minutes with a bullet in his chest. You know what you call that? You call that nuts. No. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you what it did. It had a remarkable impact on the crowd. It had a steadying influence. In the midst of pressure, in the midst of crisis, he steadied them by his behavior. Uh, we're looking at Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the good guys. He's one of the good kings in the southern kingdom. He is one of the very best kings that Judah uh, ever had. We are looking at his life over several sessions because there is so much given to him. His is a very, very long biography. Um, there's a biography out on uh, Theodore Roosevelt that Edmund Morris wrote. It's in two large, hefty volumes, and they're both great. They're, they're wonderful to read. Um, uh, there's a lot of information on Theodore Roosevelt. There's probably more information on Hezekiah than any other king 
besides Saul and David and Solomon. There's a lot of stuff. But when we look at his life, his life tends to break up and his life tends to revolve around four crises. And if you were here last week, you know that we dealt with the first crisis. And what was the first crisis in his life? Well, it's the crisis that we all face, and that is the crisis of becoming one's own man. At some point, we got to decide who we are, what we believe, um, how we're going to live, how we're going to act. We were all raised in homes. Uh, you can't do anything about the home into which you were born. When you're a kid, you're a kid. You've got parents. Your parents make decisions. Your parents decide to stay together or to not stay together. They decide to follow Christ or to not follow Christ. When you're a kid, you're just along for the ride. But we're not kids anymore. Now we're the parents. Now we're the grandparents. Now we're making decisions. There's a point where you become your own man. And I quoted last week from Levinson's book, The Seasons of a, man, uh, the Seasons of a Man's Life. And I want to give you just a couple more paragraphs out of that because uh, it's just so cotton-picking real to life. He has this, they, they studied the lives of men and came up with these chapters that men go through. The, the stage between 33 and 40, how many of you guys are there? Between 33 and 40. They call that, generally speaking, the settling down period. We talked about this last week. Listen to what he says. In this period, a man has two major tasks. Now, let's back up to the 20s. How many of you guys are in your 20s? A few of you. There are two issues in the 20s. Number one is, am I going to be an intern? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's not an issue. Um, two issues in the 20s. First issue is, what am I going to do? That's the issue. Remember when you were 21? 22, you remember that? That's a big deal. What am I going to do? So you spend some time, a lot of time, working that through. The second issue of the 20s is, who am I going to marry? That's what the 20s are all about. Everything else is secondary in the 20s to that. When you get into your 30s, when you get on the other side of 30, 33 to 40, and some of you guys in your 50s and 60s, do you remember how shocked you were when you turned 40? Do you remember that? Are you able to remember that is the question. You see? Yeah, you can remember it. And now what you can't believe is that you're this far on the other side of 40. Life is just fascinating, isn't it? We go from chapter to chapter to chapter. For you guys in the 33 to 40 range, uh, you're fresh on this deal of settling down. Here's what Levinson says. He says, in this period, a man has two major tasks. A, he tries to establish a niche in society uh, to anchor his life more firmly, to develop competence in a chosen craft, to become a valued member of a valued world. And B, or secondly, he works at making it, striving to advance, to progress on a timetable. He goes on and says, the image of a ladder is central to the settling down enterprise. It reflects the interest in advancement and affirmation so central to this period of life. By ladder, we refer to all dimensions of advancement, increases in social rank, income, power, fame, creativity, quality of family life, 
social contribution, as these are important for the man and his world. We want to be ascending the ladder. We want to be progressing up the ladder. And then Levinson says this, at the start of this period, 33-ish, a man is on the bottom rung of his ladder and is entering a world in which he is a junior member. His aims are to advance in the enterprise, to climb the ladder, and become a senior member in that world. That's what 33 to 40 is all about. His sense of well-being during this period depends strongly on his own and others' evaluation of his progress towards these goals. At the end of the settling down period, 36 to 40, and how many of you guys are there? Is anybody there? Okay. We're going to watch you guys, and we're going to give you a prescription here in just a minute. All right? You're in this 36 to 40? Listen. He says, there is a distinctive phase that we call becoming one's own man. The major developmental task of this phase are to accomplish the goals of the settling down enterprise, to become a senior member in one's world, to speak more strongly with one's own voice, and to have a greater measure of authority. That's what it's all about. We saw the crisis last week in Hezekiah's life of doing that because he was a co-ruler with his father for a number of years. Now, the thing that's interesting about that is that his dad was a lousy leader and his father was a wicked man. Uh, when his father died, he had to decide what kind of man he was going to be, and he immediately decided that he was going to take a path opposite of his father. He immediately decided that he was going to follow the Lord and become his own man and live his own life and make his own decisions because he wanted to honor the Lord. And as a result of that, the Lord honored him. Um, in every chapter of life, I think we decide that all over again. We decide what kind of man it is that we're going to be. And Lou, I see you walking up here. David Wagner needed a job change. Dave, if you can go talk to him, that'd be great. Thanks, man. Uh, in every chapter, in every chapter of life, in, in a sense, we decide, uh, I think, all over again what kind of man we're going to be. I don't care if you're in your 20s or if you're in your 50s. We make that choice. Uh, so you're married for 35 years, you see? The question is, are you going to be married for 40 years? See, all the way through. And that's why Moses in Psalm 90 said, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. But soon it is gone, and we fly away. Life is going by so quickly and then he goes on and he says so teach us to number our days this is verse 12 that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom no matter what phase you are in life the thing that you need is wisdom the guys in their 20s they need wisdom you see so i'm checking my voicemail driving up here and i got a voicemail from my son john because he's trying to graduate by next december and he says, Dad, I need to talk with you because I'm taking 18 units this semester. And I got to do that in order to graduate next December. And I'm sorting out, though, because I kind of want to pass those classes. <laughs> That's a good thing. You see, he's just sorting it out. Do I, is it worth it taking that many hours to graduate next December, or does it make more sense to just go ahead and graduate in May and spread it out? 
You see, so what's John, what's he, what's he dealing with? He's dealing with getting out because he, has to, he wants to get out so that he can get on with doing the work that he wants to do. You see, that's life. But that's not any different than what I'm asking God to do for me at the age of 54. See, what John needs is wisdom. What I need at 54 is wisdom because I've never been 54 before. Uh, what you need, no matter where you are, is you need the wisdom of God. I think it's safe to say that as a leader, and this is not to be negative, but one of the things that a leader does is that a leader deals with crisis. So what's the first crisis Hezekiah deals with? The issue of becoming his own man. Right on the heels of that comes another crisis. And this is the one we're going to look at tonight. Um, we all deal with crisis. Uh, Crisis is uh, uh, just is part and parcel of life. Um, crisis is something that uh, sobers us. Uh, crisis is something that puts pressure on us. Crisis is something that enables us to focus and to hone in on what's important. Uh, and to leave aside the things that are not immediately critical because we've got a crisis on our hands. This guy has a crisis on his hands in the passage that we're going to look at tonight. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 32. The first crisis is the crisis of becoming his own man. And he did that. He undid everything that his father did his father literally locked up the temple to keep the priest out so that sacrifices couldn't be made to the Lord because his father was an idolater. His father was a wicked man. His father broke up the utensils in the temple so that sacrifices couldn't be made. Within the first 30 days of Hezekiah ruling by himself after his father died, he opens the temple, he gathers the Levites, he begins to repair it, he begins to institute the worship of God that was ordained in the scriptures. He's becoming his own man. And because of that, God began to bless this guy. And God began to honor him because as it says in Samuel, they who honor me, them will I honor. So, in 32 of Second Chronicles, here's what we read, 32.1. After these acts of faithfulness, what acts? Well, the acts of honoring God, the acts of uh, cleansing the temple, the acts of reinstituting worship in the temple. Notice, notice what the Lord says here. After these acts of faithfulness. Boy, what a, what a tremendous evaluation. What a tremendous... Um, report. Uh, what a tremendous review. In, in your work situation, does anyone give you a review? Do they do that? Um, you know, the Lord does that. I think he does it with all of us. Uh, after these acts of faithfulness, this guy was doing really well. Uh, God sought. God honored him. Um, so, so then what happens? 
after these acts of faithfulness. So here's a guy that's faithful to God. He's proving his faithfulness. So what's going to happen next? After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, his nation, and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Now, that's not real encouraging. Here's a guy that in the first chapter of his king, of his, of, of his rule as king, is faithful to God. And God says that you're faithful. And God says that you have honored me. And uh, you have been uh, obedient to my word. So after these acts of faithfulness, what happens? This guy Sennacherib from, from Assyria. Now let's back up and get our history. Because last week, and some of you guys have your chart if you remember last week, because Hezekiah is with the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, if you look at your chart, ceases to exist because of their wickedness and because of their idolatry. They phase out of existence, and God sends a nation up against them to discipline them and to take them off into exile. The nation is the nation of Assyria. So... Assyria was this powerful, powerful force. You see, here's the crisis that Hezekiah is going to face. He's got a crisis of, quite frankly, we call it today, terrorism. Because he's got an enemy up against him that just obliterated the northern kingdom. And now they're knocking on his gate. Not only did they take that kingdom, they took a whole bunch of other kingdoms. Charlie Dyer, in his, um, in his book, The Rise of Babylon, he says this about Assyria. He says, Assyria was a cruel nation whose kings used harsh means to acquire and maintain its empire. In general, the Assyrian empire was a huge military machine existing by means of and for the sake of war, possibly because the Assyrians felt threatened and saw no other way to govern than by force. The kings of Assyria boasted of the way they mutilated, flayed, impaled, and roasted their captives. These guys were bad news. These guys you didn't want to miss with. Uh, these guys had no scruples. Th these guys took leaders and made examples of them. What, what the Assyrians were known for were taking a city and coming in and taking all the leaders and beheading them and stacking their heads in a pyramid, hundreds of heads high, in front of the city gates. That's what the, and, and if they beheaded you, you considered yourself lucky. Because some guys were filleted, like you'd fillet a bass after you catch it in a lake. They'd clean you, they'd gut you, and they'd cut you in the strips. That's what they do. Or they'd roast you over a fire. These guys were bad news. They, just take, they had just taken the northern kingdom. Now, if you were Hezekiah, how would you feel? You've you got these guys now coming after you, and here's the thing. It makes sense that God would use them to discipline the northern kingdom, but here's a guy that's trying to do right. There are times in life when you will walk in obedience to the Lord, and what will happen is you will find yourself facing a major crisis that threatens you and threatens your existence. Why is that true? Because what God is going to do 
he takes faithful men, and what he does is, you've, you've been faithful in this chapter of life. Now you've got a new chapter. You're going to face a new crisis, and what this crisis is going to do is that this crisis is once again going to test you, and it's going to deepen you. It happens all the time in the Christian life. Lord, why is this happening to me? Why, why am I getting hit from four different ways? Uh, why am I having such a struggle financially? I, I've tried to honor you. I've tried to follow you. Why am I having such a struggle in my career? I, I'm, I'm trying to be your guy. I'm trying to be a man of integrity. I'm trying to honor you in my family. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, follow you in my heart and in my mind. I, and why am I dealing with this stuff? Well, what, what's happening is that God is testing you. Uh, James put it this way. James 1-2. James said, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, is that how you feel when you hit a trial? I'm going to be honest with you. When I hit a trial, that's not my first reaction. To consider it joy. I, I'm just being honest with you. You guys are probably a lot more spiritual than I am. But when I hit a rough stretch, when I hit a trial, I'm not, uh, I'm not walking around saying, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. You know what I mean? That's not my reaction. Um, I'm usually uh, a little upset, and I'm thinking, what the heck's going on? And I'm also thinking, why is this happening to me? Because, you know, Lord, I'm trying to follow you, and I'm trying to, well, well you know what? If I just back up and look at the Scriptures, I know why it's happening to me. Because I'm about ready to go into another test. Because what God wants to do is he wants to deepen me. He wants to take me to another level. He wants to uh, conform me to the image of Christ. And what that's going to mean is that I'm going to go through a test, and then I'm going to go through another test, and I'm going to go through another test. You see, and another, we could call those tests, those tests are crises. That's what they are. And what the Lord, count it all joy. It doesn't say feel it is joy, does it? It doesn't say that. Because God doesn't expect you to walk around, you know, trying to conjure up uh, positive emotions. Because the Christian life is not a, a Tony Robbins seminar. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's nonsense. Uh, the Christian life is very, very, very realistic. It's, it's honest. So he doesn't say feel it as joy. He says count it, consider it, chalk it up to joy well, how can you do that? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces, what? Endurance. And that endurance may have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, what, what God is attempting to do is to take some men and to make them into men. He, he, he wants to take men and make them into mature men. He wants to, he, he wants to take men... And, and, and put a, put a razor-sharp edge on their life. Uh, he, he, he wants to take them to the next level of leadership 
But in order to do that, he takes us through these crises. He takes us through these tests. Uh, he scares us to death. He frightens us. Our times, our very existence is questionable. And he'll put you in a situation where if he doesn't come through for you, you're finished. That happens in every phase of life. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We have various crises. If we were to go around the room tonight and talk, different guys are dealing with different things. Some of you, the crisis in your life is physical. It's a health issue. Um, others, it's a family issue. Uh, for others, it's a financial issue. Now, here's what's really interesting. Sometimes um, you're dealing with three or four crises at the same time. Now, I should tell you this. As Hezekiah is dealing with the Assyrians knocking on his door, he also has a terminal illness that's going to kill him. But I'm not going to deal with that tonight. I'm going to deal with it next week. But just sort of keep that in the back of your mind, all right? I mean, this guy is going to lose his life. This guy is sick. He's weak. Uh, he is physically afflicted. He is flat out going to die. Not only is he dealing with that, but suddenly he's got the most powerful military machine on the face of the earth coming in, and they're going to besiege him, and they're going to take him. And quite frankly, he doesn't have what it takes to fight these guys off. See, when you're physically, when you're physically depleted, um, you're vulnerable. See, it's one thing to be attacked when, when physically you're okay. But when you're physically depleted and then you, you get hit with something in your marriage or you get sit, hit with something in your career, you don't have your normal stuff. You don't have anything to fight back with, you see? And, and you're extremely vulnerable. None of us as men, the thing that we don't want is to be weak physically. We hate physical weakness. We don't want physical weakness. Uh, uh, quite frankly, we despise physical weakness because we want to be capable and we want to be competent and we want to be able to do what we're supposed to do as men. But oftentimes... God will afflict a man physically because there are things that are more important to God than a man's physical well-being. Sometimes God will afflict us physically in order to do something internally to make us stronger. So what was it Paul said in 2 Corinthians? Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. He said, I've learned to glory in my weakness because the power of God is perfected in weakness. He had this physical affliction. We don't know what it is. There's all kinds of conjecture. But three times he asked the Lord to take it away, and three times the Lord said no. The Lord said, my power is perfected in weakness. There are times in life as men, there are chapters in life where God will afflict you and he will make you weak. And we hate it. <clears throat> we despise it. We don't want it. Now, why is he making you weak? Because he wants to make you strong. Uh, when we've got it together, when we're capable, we tend to depend upon ourselves. 
you know, Paul's back here in his wheelchair. And Paul's dealing with Lou Gehrig's disease. And Paul is one of my heroes. Because um, I remember that conversation we had at Sonic. And we all went over there that night. And uh, um, Paul's got some buddies and these guys come every week. And Anyway. But Paul's dealing with Lou Gehrig's disease. And what's happening is his body is physically deteriorating. But I'll never forget that night at Sonic, when Paul said something along these lines to me, uh, what Paul said to me is, God has been so gracious to afflict me. Because what he has done is, he's, he's brought me to know him, and he saved my life. Now, that's not the perspective most people have. Uh, Paul's in a situation, he can't do what he could do five years ago. He's to be a weightlifter. You see, physically strong. He can't do that anymore. Physically, see, he can relate to what Paul was saying. Outwardly, we're deteriorating. But it's the spiritual man that is developing. You see? Paul is more of a man now than he was when he could bench press eight zillion pounds. You see? Because, because, see, the issue is, and when I talk to NFL teams, and they, you, know, you do that every once in a while, and they, these guys have these chapel services, and these guys come in, and they're 23 years old, and they're worth about $90 million, and they're 6'8", and they weigh you know, 340, and they got 2% body fat. And you know, they come walking, and, you know, and, you know, and so we, you know, they can bench press 700 or 90. You know, you know what I say to those guys? I said, hey, let me ask you something. How much can you bench press with your character? That's the issue. See, that's the issue. And you know the answer of most of those guys? Now, some of them are believers, but a lot of them, uh, they can't pick up a straw with their character. You see? All they can do is play ball and have children out of wedlock. That's all those suckers can do. Because they got no character, they got no inner strength. All they have are physical gifts which are going to fade away. That's it. That's not what God wants for us. So what does God do, guys? He, take, he brings us into crises. Now, let's take a look at this real quick in, in 32. And what I'm saying is you can be obedient and you're going to face a crisis. It's just what is in John 15. John 15 says that every branch that bears fruit, God will prune so that it might bear more fruit. Isn't that amazing? We talked about this. So you got a rose bush. Gives you beautiful roses. You come along. You got your little, you know, what do you call those suckers? Shears, that's what you call them. I call them scissors. But if you're really into gardening and you listen to Neil Sperry, you got shears. And what you come along and you do, and it's February, and now it's time to prune the crepe myrtles, right? If you're going to have good crepe myrtles in the summer, red and all those great colors, you got to prune them while it's cold. What about a rose bush? It's giving you all kinds of beautiful roses. You come along and you start cutting that sucker back. Now, if that rose bush could talk, it would say, what the heck are you doing? Hey, what 
the heck are you doing, man? What's your problem? Hey, did I not give you what you wanted? Did I not give you those beautiful roses? So what the heck are you doing cutting me back? It's because, hey, you did a great job. Man, your review is unbelievable. It's in your file. But you know what? I want, I want more roses. I want you to be more fruitful than you've ever been before in your life. So I'm going to cut you back. See, that's what the Lord does with us. So that's what's happening with Hezekiah here in 30. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib shows up with his big, mean military machine. Uh, verse 2. Now, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Um, remember I talked about the importance of a leader being steady? I want to show you some ways in this passage that Hezekiah demonstrates steadiness in the midst of crisis. Uh, In verses 1 through 6, which we're in right now, he's steady in the midst of testing. All right? 1 through 6. So he's got these big suckers knocking on his door. So what does he do? He gets his officers, and they cut off the supply of water because that's outside the city because these guys are going to try and besiege him. Uh, Verse 4. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, why should the kings of Assyria have abundant water? Now look at verse 5. And he took courage. He took courage. Do you think he dealt with any fear? Shoot, yeah, he did. He knew, he knew what these suckers did. He knew what he was up against. Hey, bravery is not the absence of fear. Bravery is moving ahead and doing what is right in spite of your fear. He took courage. He was steady. Did he panic? Did he flip? No. He took courage, verse 5, rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down, erected towers on it, built another outside wall, and strengthened the millow in the city of David, and made weapons and shields in great number. When you're in crisis, here's a principle. Do what you can do. Do what makes sense. If it makes sense, do it. You don't have to say, now, Lord, is it your will that I would build the wall? Story about D.L. Moody, and he was on an Atlantic passage. He'd been preaching in London. They're on the ship coming back to New York. A fire breaks out in the middle of the night. People are scrambling around. You know, you got some panic. And some real spiritual guy calls Moody And says, Mr. Moody, shouldn't we pray? Moody said, no. Get a hose. That's spirituality. There's a time to pray, and there's a time to go get a hose and put the fire out. Now, when you've got the hose, and you're spraying water on the fire, pray as you're doing it. But don't stand there and have a four-hour prayer meeting because you're Joe spiritual. You're not spiritual. You're worthless. And you're foolish. That's not spirituality. That's nonsense. God is extremely practical. So what does this guy do? He does what he can legitimately do. He builds a wall. Look at verse 6. And he appointed military officers over the people and gathered them in the square at the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them. That's what leaders do. In a crisis, leaders speak words of courage. One of the best things that happened to me this summer was when we went to England and we visited the cabinet war rooms. Man, that was wild. These little 
tiny rooms where Churchill ran the war. Just under a, 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 a nondescript government building, nobody knew he was down there in a bunker. And those rooms were so small and tiny and spare and sparse. But there was a room, there was one room, literally, that was a broom closet. And from that broom closet, I mean, you could hardly get in there and sit in a chair. There was, I mean, it was a metal desk, a metal chair. There was a telephone with some deal about this size that sat in that room. And it was on that secure telephone that he would talk with Franklin Roosevelt. It was also down there that he would talk to the people of England who were underneath an incredible load. And he would speak encouraging words to them. And he steadied them in the midst of crisis. Have you and your wife ever had a, uh, an argument? You ever had a spat? And you're not getting along real well? And, and those of you and your kids are young. Have you ever had one of your kids say to you, Daddy, are, are you and Mommy going to get a divorce? All right, what's your job? Your job is to steady them and to speak encouragingly to them. That's your job. You're a leader. Um, uh, he's going to speak to the people. And notice in verses 7 and 8 how he, um, he is steady because he focuses on the character of God. Guys, here's a great secret. When you face a crisis, what will steady you is focusing on everything that can go wrong. You know that's not true. What's going to steady you is the character of a God who is faithful. Watch what this guy does in verses 7. He says to the people, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is with him. For the one who is with us is greater than the one with him. That is true. He looks to God. Who is our God? He is the God above everything. He is the king of kings. He raises up rulers. He sets them down. Isaiah, who was a prophet, we're going to see Isaiah here in a minute, who was a contemporary. Every king had a prophet. Isaiah ministered to Hezekiah. It was Isaiah in chapter 40. It says, God raises up rulers. He sets, them, he sets them down. He blows on them, and they wither. That's how you take a guy like Saddam Hussein, and when you fish him out, he's in, the sucker's in a septic tank because God raises them up, and he, sets, he blows on them and says, you're finished, pal. I'm done with you. I've used you. That's what God does with the rulers. Uh, for the one with us is greater than the one with him. Uh, with him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Why? Because he spoke the truth to them. <clears throat> he spoke to them the truth of the character of God. And whenever you're in a crisis and you look to the character of God, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to calm down. And you're going to steady. You're going to steady. Because your God is sovereign. There was no one who can defeat your God. There was no one greater than your God. There was no one who can frustrate God's plan for you. God. 
What does the scripture say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Have, have you ever had something in your life that you thought was insurmountable? And then God came through and he took care of it. Have you ever had that happen to you? Man, I have. That's why I love Psalm 139. It talks about the character of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the omniscience, omnipotence. You know what that psalm is about? My God can beat up your God. My God can take any God. My God can take care of me in any circumstances. I don't care, I don't care what it is. My God is great. When I begin to reflect on the character of who my God is, it steadies me. We, we have this movement in America called the church growth movement. And, and you know what they want to do? They want to grow churches. They want to get as many people in as they can. And the problem with that is, is that so many of them are sacrificing truth in order to get people in. Well, what the heck are you having church for? Why don't you just open a country club? I mean, why don't you just give away free Snickers bars? And sometimes churches do that. It's nuts. They'll get free this if you're going to chump that. Why don't you tell the truth? Why don't you tell the truth about God so when your people hit crisis, they've got something to lean on and depend upon? That's what a church is about. And what he did was he calmed his people. Now, I want you to see nine. This is wild stuff. Uh, verses 9 through 19, he's steady in the midst of blasphemy. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem. And you read on down, you know, verse 10. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And he's saying this to all the people in Jerusalem. On what are you trusting that you are remaining in Jerusalem under siege? Is not Hezekiah misleading you to give yourselves over to die by hunger and thirst, saying, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before one altar and on it you shall burn incense? He is mocking them for the fact that they believe that their God is the one true God. That sounds real familiar to me. Uh, Hezekiah was not into multiculturalism or diversity. Hezekiah didn't believe there were many ways to God. He believed there was one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Nobody made that up. Jesus said it. That's what Je Jesus was very exclusive. Uh, Je Jesus was uh, not real open. Quite frankly, uh, he wasn't open to another point of view because he was truth. He just declared the truth. And he's mocking Hezekiah for believing this. Look at verse 13. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the lands? It was actually this guy's father who had gone up and taken the northern kingdom. But now he's in charge. Were the gods of the nations of the lands able at all to deliver their hand from my hand? Who was there among the gods of those nations which my father, my fathers utterly destroyed who could deliver his people out of my hand that our God, or that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? 
Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this, and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you from my hand? You know what? This sucker's asking for it because he's a blasphemer. And his servants spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to insult the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of the lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah shall not deliver his people from my hand. And they called this out with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them so that they might take the city. You know, this guy reminds me of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. Would you not agree with that? Little suckers went to law school, wear black robes. Think they're hot stuff. They're blasphemers. That's who they are. They're fools. They're blaspheming Almighty God, and they know it. And they take pride in it, and they take joy in it. Uh, Remember the Assyrians we're talking about? I think I talked, I, I think I used this illustration a while back. I can't remember, I'm going to use it again because it's so cut and pick and good. When Winston Churchill was just a young buck in Parliament, uh, he had this revolution going on in Russia. And the Bolsheviks were bad news. The Bolsheviks were like the, were like the Assyrians. And, and, you know, people always fed stuff to Churchill because they knew he told the truth. So there were guys in the army and intelligence agents that would send stuff to Churchill. Even when he was out of office in the 30s, he had better intelligence than the prime minister had because people trusted him. Uh, He had pictures from Russia uh, in regard to the uh, uh, atrocities that were taking place. Now, here's what was going on. The government decided that that they wanted to do was they wanted to uh, support the Bolsheviks. And he said, you can't do that. These guys are against everything we stand for. These guys are contrary to to our belief system. They're contrary to morality and what's good and right. There there is no way that that we can support them. And, uh, I mean, he was just beside himself. And, and, And an attempt... To get their attention, Churchill said, he said, you might as well legalize sodomy as recognize the Bolsheviks. In other words, he thought of the most outlandish, unbelievable, unimaginable thing he could think of. And we've done it. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? We've done it. And we're proud of it. And we're boasting about it. Uh, Some things never change, do they, guys? They're blasphemers. So what do you do when you're living in a culture like that? Hey, let me ask you something. If it's that way now, what is it going to be like in 20 years? Do you ever pray for your kids? Do you ever pray for your grandkids? Do you? Man, if you don't, you ought to start. You say, I don't have any grandkids. Well, none that you know about, maybe. But God knows who they are, 
right? Doesn't God know who your grandkids are going to be? Well, why don't you start praying for them now? Because, see, you're going to be dead and gone. And they're going to be, and those kids aren't even alive right now. But in 40 years, they're going to be 40 years old. And what the heck are they going to be dealing with trying to raise their kids? So why don't you make an investment now in the future and begin to pray for your grandchildren that you don't even know about? And pray that, 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 that God would give wisdom to their parents to follow him with a whole heart and that he would prevent them from sexual immorality and homosexuality, which will be so prevalent. And, and probably 40 years from now, it's very possible it's going to be against the law to say that homosexuality is wrong. Last week in France, a Roman Catholic priest was fined for saying that homosexuality was a sin. Canada's there. It's coming here. So why not pray for your grandkids? You see? See, that's having vision. So what does this guy do in this crisis, in the middle of this blasphemy? Look at verse 20. He's steady in trust and prayer. Oh, oh, I skipped 19. 19 is it's just great because it describes. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hand. You don't do that. He's the one true God. So look at verse 20. But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. Flip over real quick to 2 Kings. Go to your left to 2 Kings 19. Real quick. Because what's going to happen is, in 2 Kings, it's going to uh, record for us um, the prayer. If you look at 2 Kings 19, verse 14. Remember the letters they sent that blasphemed the Lord and said, here's what we're going to do to you guys? Verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. Man, what a great picture. He just took that letter, he goes in there, and he just lays it out. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thy ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood, and stone. So they have destroyed them. And now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, O Lord, art God. Then Isaiah chips in, verse 20. Isaiah sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon said years ago, he said, it is better for your prayer to be heard than for your prayer to be answered. What does that mean? I think it means this. Oftentimes, when we're in crisis, we call out to the Lord, just like Hezekiah did. But what we tend to do sometimes, guys, is that when we're in crisis, we call out to the Lord, Lord, I'm in trouble, I need you to help me. And then we begin to elucidate to the Lord what he ought to do to help us. And we begin to write a prescription to him. 
Just like a doctor will do. Here. It's like we say, Lord, if you'll, here, just fill this. That'll take care of it. That's nuts. That's great. Don't, don't presume to tell the Lord how to fix it because he's the Lord and you're not. Just say, Lord, I'm in trouble. We're going down. This is, we're over. But Lord, you're a great God. We want your name to be honored. We want you to do something great that our children, we can tell them about. And they'll remember. And they can tell their kids and they can tell their grandkids about 100 years from now. Would you do something that great that would honor your name and that would give you glory in our family for generations to come? Boom. That's great stuff. However you want to do it. Lord, you do whatever, whatever would please you, whatever would honor you. I mean, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I wouldn't presume upon you. God, I just ask you to show your goodness and your power and your mercy. And you know what he does? God moves in situations like that. Because you're expressing your dependence. So he prays this prayer and um, flip back to Second uh, Chronicles. We could read it in Kings, but I, I want to go to Chronicles again. L look at Second uh, Chronicles 32. Look at verses 21. Let's go to 20 because that's where we stop. King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet prayed about this and cried out to heaven. Catch this. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he, the king, returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, catch this, and guided them on every side. He guided them on every side. Um, did Hezekiah learn something from this crisis? Yeah. What crisis uh, are you in right now? He said, I'm not in a crisis. Okay, good period of blessing we thank the lord for that because we're not in perpetual crisis you see but the next crisis that shows up because we never know what's going to happen when the phone rings do we we never know now god's a loving god god's a caring god nothing can come into my life and touch me without god's permission and approval and anything that comes into my life that i view as negative or harmful is coming in by God's permission and it's coming in for my good to make me a better man and conform me to the image of Christ. When Hezekiah called out to the Lord and was dependent, the, the Lord guided him on every side. He's got your left flank. He's got your right flank. He's got your behind. He's got your back. He's out in front of you leading you and navigating you through life and deepening you to make you a man of God. That's why we go from crisis to crisis. What we're doing is we're going from faith to faith. He's making us into men. Men who may be weak on the outside, um, maybe weak financially right now, maybe out of work. Maybe weak emotionally. Maybe you're in the midst of a depression. You just can't, you can't get out of that thing. You never been this way before in your life. 
You just can't pull yourself out. That's okay. That's all right. You just keep punching in and showing up, and God is doing a work in your life through that depression. And I'll tell you what, he'll bring you out of it. I went through one 18 years ago that took me two and a half years to come out of. I had a period where I cried on the average of three to four hours a day. I'd never been like that before in my life. It scared me to death. I was as weak as I've ever been. Everything I touched Who was it, Midas? Everything you touched turned to gold. Everything I touched turned to crap. I'm just being honest with you. I couldn't get a break. And I was defeated and I was beat up and, and I didn't have a church and, and nobody wanted me and I couldn't get anywhere to speak and nobody was calling. I mean, I'm going to tell you something. It was tough. It was tough sledding. Uh, I was broken. I was run down. I'm going to tell you something. I was so depressed. I remember the day I prayed, Lord, if, if I could get in my car and you just send a semi to come straight across and hit me head on, I'd do it. That's how bad I felt. Now, I wasn't going to do that because of Mary and the kids. I wasn't going to weasel out on them. You see, that's how bad I felt. And I didn't know how long I'd be in it. And I'll be honest with you, when you're that depressed, you'll think you'll never come out of it. Let me tell you something. You'll come out of it. When God has done his work, he'll raise you up. And you'll be stronger than you've ever been. And he'll use you. And he'll take you to the next level. But you've got to get weak before you'll be strong. So, Father, we surrender to you. Or sometimes life doesn't go the way we anticipated. We thought when we'd be this age that life would look a certain way, and it's not looking that way. And Lord, it's easy to get disappointed, and it's easy to get angry. Uh, Lord, I would pray for each of us tonight that you might steady us, that you'd just steady us in your character. Help us to back up a little bit and take the wide-angle look. We, we're so focused, Lord, on our immediate present circumstances that aren't going well. And we forget, Lord, that you're working something here that's going to have implications for years and years and years. What we're going through today is part of your plan, and you want to do something out of that that is going to have positive consequences, not only in our lives, but in the lives of our children and their children, if we'll just be teachable and if we'll steady ourselves and wait for you to work. This is hard stuff. It's, it's bitterly difficult at times, and we're threatened, and we're worried about the future, and we don't see any way to get out. We might as well have the Assyrians knocking on our door. Now, Lord, help us to learn from this good guy. Help us to learn from this good king. Lord, help us to spread out the circumstances of our lives and just spread them out before you in the temple and say, Lord, you already know it, but I'm just bringing it to you, and I'm surrendering to your will, 
and I'm surrendering to your timing and I'm asking you to work in your way that would bring pleasure to you. I submit. I bow. And I wait for your perfect time. Do this in our lives, Lord. We don't want to be shallow men. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.